Hi there, and welcome to the 20th episode of the T21 Mom podcast. My name is Mary, and I'll be your host. Each episode, we'll talk about life, Down syndrome, single parenting, mamahood, and pretty much everything in between. As you probably already know, I have a daughter named Ainsley, and she's six years old and rocking an extra chromosome, also known as Down syndrome. And I'm living life my way. And usually on most of these episodes, my friend Ron joins me. But due to some technical difficulties, we're recording through Facebook Messenger. Uh, He is unable to be with us today. But today we are talking about something that is very close to my heart. My daughter Ainsley, she was diagnosed with autism just over a year ago. It wasn't a complete surprise, but the way the whole diagnosis was handled kind of left me feeling very alone and in a really dark place. You know, I felt the doctor didn't really know much about Down syndrome and didn't really take it into account when he was giving the diagnosis. And he also told me not to bother teaching her the ABCs or the niceties such as please and thank you. Things that she already actually knew. I don't think he meant to never teach her those things, but the way it was sort of presented to me, just it felt really disheartening. And I felt like I was just sucked into a a pretty deep black hole. But we are going to talk to an old friend of mine from high school. Her name is Dr. Karen Bopp, and she's actually a speech pathologist by trade and went on to do her PhD in autism. And actually through the help of Karen and also just the autism community at large, Ainsley is doing awesome. I'm really happy to report. So let's go talk to Karen. Today on the T21 Mom podcast, I'm very pleased to have an old high school friend join us. Dr. Karen Bopp is a speech language language pathologist, I can't even say it, and an autism expert. And we are going to talk about the dual diagnosis of autism in children with Down syndrome. Welcome, Karen. Yeah, thank you. Great. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. I'm so glad that you're able to join us today. And I mean, obviously, I've known you for a long time. But can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up doing your PhD in autism? Yeah, sure. So I started uh, way back when I was doing my bachelor's and I was working um, actually as a, as a sort of a part-time job over the summer with a set of twins, you know, funny because I have twins now, who <laughs> had some developmental issues. And, you know, I would uh, sort of do some childcare uh, throughout the day and I would also go to their speech-language uh, pathology therapy sessions with them. And when I went to those sessions, I was like, wow, this is this is great. Like this is somebody you you can, I I saw, I witnessed sort of progress that can happen with sort of good one-to-one sort of connections and interventions. And I thought, Hmm, that's what I want to do. So I kind of switched my path a bit, uh, away a bit from psychology and more to the speech sciences and went into become a, a speech path. And while I was a speech path, I was really fortunate to work. And this was, you know, in the the late 90s. I was uh, fortunate to work in 
a preschool uh, in British Columbia, in actually in Delta, that focused on uh, including children with autism within the setting. Mm -hmm. And it really was the only school in British Columbia that was funded provincially to, to do this, to include kids with ASD. So I had sort of this connection and this bigger um, client group of kids who had ASD. And in, and in those days, it was you know, really thought that uh, autism was quite rare, mm -hmm. that, you know, it was like, you know, maybe two to four cases per 10,000 children. But, you know, I was sort of exposed and I always had a, a caseload of kids with ASD and I thought, wow, it's so interesting and there's so much different potential and there's, it's such a, uh, all the kids presented so uniquely and, and families were sort of a joy to work with. And I thought, you you know, I really want to find out how I can do more in this field. So after sort of working as a speech path for many years with that organization, I went back to uh, start my PhD. And at the same time, uh, we started the early intensive behavior intervention program in our in our area at work. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I went and, and sort of, you know, went from there and, and sort of and as the years went on, the increase in autism sort of went went up and up and uh you know there was more and more more kids on my caseload and there's just always more to learn it was it's always a very exciting field to sort of help families um up on the front line and that's kind of why i went in to do it to to learn more and to figure out how how we could help kids reach their potential because there's so much potential that's wonderful. And so can you explain a little bit about what ASD or autism spectrum disorder is? Sure. Well, it's kind of, a, I don't know if we can do it, it's an easy thing to define, <laughs> but you know, autism spectrum disorder or ASD, and I guess we can kind of say ASD now, mm -hmm. it really is a complex neurobiological condition. And it does impact brain development, and it does affect sort of how a person socially relates to others, their communication, their interests, their behaviors. And so it's really said if you've met one individual with autism, Stephen Shore, who's an adult with autism, said if you've met one individual with autism, you've really met one individual with autism. Mm -hmm. And that's because the symptoms of ASD present in such a wide variety of combinations from sort of mild to severe, and, that, and it can affect... Uh, individuals quite differently. That said, there are also some common sort of features that we see. Obviously, there needs to be a common sort of subset because it is categorized as autism spectrum disorder. So mm -hmm. there's really two domains that are effective. One are social communication deficits. So individuals may have difficulty you know, you can't take social and communication and separate them because you're communicating, that's some sort of social, and when you're mm -hmm. social, there's some sort of communication going on. So recently, they combined these two areas into one, social communication. So some people might have difficulty uh, connecting with others, initiating conversation, mm -hmm. or they may want to talk about the same topic over and over and, and not realize that the other person is really not interested in talking about that topic. So there's a variety of social communication deficits that can happen. The other area when it's used to diagnose is looking at fixed interest or repetitive behaviors. And so mm -hmm. these really are behaviors that we see, and they can vary from individual to individual. Some individual have unusual motor movements like flapping of the fingers in front of the eyes or flapping of the arms beside the head or rocking or walking on toes. Some individuals may really have an insistence on sameness, so mm -hmm. wanting the routine to be exactly the same, you know. So often parents might say to me, you know, I, 
I never realized that my, you know, four-year-old really was paying attention when we were driving to preschool every day. (laughs) But this morning we had a detour because there was a detour on route and he flipped out in the back seat because he wanted to go the same way each time and thought, whoa, why are we turning left when we should be going straight? And so they're like, you know, they're real insistence on sameness. Some individuals might have some fixations. You know, I've had kids who love dinosaurs Mm-hmm. Just typically, and I've had kids who love dinosaurs, <laughs> right? Like everything's about dinosaurs or unusual fixations like flags. I worked with a kid for a long time who was could name any flag wow. in any province or state or, you know, other countries. And they were just fixated. That was his special interest. Mm-hmm. And then some individuals or many individuals have sensory issues where, they may be uncomfortable with certain noises mm-hmm. or they may find it uh, difficult to be under fluorescent lights because you and I don't see, but fluorescent lights do have sort of a flickering and some individuals see that flickering. And you can you imagine that can be wow. quite annoying. So yeah. for some individuals, you might, you know, you think, oh, there's a fan in the background. You can kind of tune it out. Mm-hmm. But for many, that is sort of is equally sort of in their space as talking to the person in front of them and it's hard for them to block these senses out so it can can be quite overwhelming for some kids and individuals over time so that's sort of what autism is but again (laughs) when you've met one person you've met one person right uh, with asd and so do researchers actually know what causes autism or is it still a big mystery because just today coming over here i'm going it seemed like you said back I guess in the late 90s, they thought it was just one or two per, I can't remember what the number was that you said, but it just seems like it's so much more prevalent now. And I don't know if it's because they're being able to diagnose it better or, or is it just that more people are affected by it? Yeah, it's a really good question. We do know that there's a strong genetic link to mm-hmm. autism. That's kind of what research is finding that, uh, finding out, but it doesn't explain it all. So for example, If you have a set of identical twins and one twin has been diagnosed with autism, the other twin has about a, anywhere the research shows from a 40% to a 90% of the time would be identified, would also have a diagnosis of ASD. So even if we look at that 90%, it's not 100%. Mm -hmm. So there must be something else going on in the causes. So we also know that there's no one cause of autism. And, when, and even when we're looking at the genes, it was first thought, and I'm not a geneticist, I'm not an expert here, I'm just sort of, you know, telling you what I've learned over the years. You know, when we look at the genes, there isn't one gene that's identified. There's, a, I think, well over 100 now that have been linked to autism and, and sort of how those genes interact, turn on or turn off or or what they do is, is, is we don't really know, but we do know that, that there could have some environmental influences that having those genes turn off or on, uh, but we, we, we really don't know the cause of autism. And, and it is interesting to, to think about what they're finding with genetics that, you know, not all individuals say with, with autism present the same. So mm-hmm. it seems like it wouldn't be that all individuals have the same genetic cause or environmental cause or whatever it it may be but 
We do know that there are increased risks uh, for parents who are advanced in age. Uh, there's an increased risk with a variety of developmental disabilities, including autism. We do know that when there's some pregnancy or birth complications, that there's an increased risk. Mm -hmm. We do know that when pregnancies are spaced less than one year, there's an increased risk. Wow. But what we what we for what we do know for sure, and I'm going to sort of say it because sometimes there's an elephant in the room is that vaccines do not cause autism or have any connection with the onset of autism. So each family really has a unique experience with mm -hmm. their autism diagnosis. And for some, it corresponds with the timing of their child's vaccination. So, oh, okay. but at the same time, you know, scientists have conducted really extensive and we spent a lot of funding and money on looking at this issue of the connections with vaccines and um, developmental disabilities and that's lasted over two decades and we've really determined that there is there 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 is no link between uh, childhood vaccinations and autism and and the results of this research is quite clear but you know there's there there is there is sort mm -hmm. of a timing might be an issue for some but we really do know that you know, we, your original question is, do we know the cause? And we really don't at this time. And, and so when someone says to me, oh, I, I know the cure for autism, and that we can go into a whole other issue there, because why should somebody be cured of something? Many people with autism say, I don't want to be cured. I, I like who I am. So that's the cure is a, is a, is a touchy subject. But, mm -hmm. you know, if we don't know the cause of something, you can't say, you know, the cure of something. So it, it's still sort of out there. Right. And thank you for clearing that up about uh, the vaccinations. And because, as I'm sure you know, it's a big uh, dispute in that community, in the autism community. And I also see it in the various Down syndrome forums I'm on, too, as well. So it can be very touchy and everyone's entitled to their own opinion, for sure, whether they uh, choose to vaccinate. Absolutely. And yeah. people will make their own decisions. Mm -hmm. And But I'm just here to sort of relate the science to you and... And the fact that we've spent, uh, governments have spent a lot of money on this one question. Mm -hmm. And it's time for that funding to be used to answer other questions. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know. No, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. I know you touched yeah. a little bit on it, but like, why are some people more affected by autism or do we even know? I know it's a spectrum, but is there a reason? Like some, some yeah. seem to, you know, function you know, pretty much okay, and others seem to be really impacted. Yeah. Well, again, we don't know that answer, and it could be related to sort of the different types of people are now not saying just autism, but maybe autisms, you know, different mm -hmm. sort of types or presentations of autism. But again, we do know uh, something else is that well over 90% of people with autism are found to have one or more coexisting conditions and these coexisting oh, okay. conditions can also have a significant impact on a person's functioning so individuals with autism are significantly more likely to have psychiatric or mental health conditions including anxiety mood disorders adhd obsessive compulsive disorder tourette's they're more likely to have other medical conditions including seizures gastrointestinal symptoms, ear and respiratory infections, and they're more likely to have disruption of disruptive or challenging behaviors, issues with their sleep, eating problems. All of these also occur at higher rates with autism. So it's hard to say sort of just put autism in this one little package and mm -hmm. say, 
there's this person is high functioning, this person's low functioning, this person is this or that, because there are so many other things that, that affect that now that we know that a lot of people have co-occurring or, or co, what we call comorbid conditions with ASD. But that said too, I really, I've never been a fan of the word high functioning versus low functioning I'm autism. so glad you said that because I was just about to say that. I can't, I can't stand that label. So yes. Yeah, because it implies that high functioning is better somehow and mm -hmm. that the kid is, or the individual's okay somehow, or low functioning is that they, you know, they're not okay. Mm -hmm. And, and really it, it's, it's not so crystal clear as that. So for example, people who they quote unquote call high functioning, I know a lot of adults and individuals who have got degrees, can do quite well in routine situations, but aren't able to hold down a job or mm -hmm. also have co-occurring disorder, like, you know, mental health issues that really affect their day-to-day -day functioning. Or you might find an individual who maybe sort of said is high functioning. And so the teacher sort of maybe sees that in the classroom and sees this word high functioning. And so then they interpret the child's behavior. Maybe they don't want to complete a task or maybe they're having difficulties in some, some sort of uh, part of the program or the classroom. And they may interpret that as the child being stubborn or not wanting to do it because, you know, he or she is high functioning. So, right. you know, they seem to be okay. And so what happens is a lot of kids' issues get missed because we have this mm -hmm. sort of label of high functioning. And so things are attributed to, you know, the child just not being stubborn and not wanting to learn because right. look, they do really well in math and look, they do really well in, in the, you know, English or, but they, you know, they're having difficulties in, in this part of the, uh, of the curriculum. Right. And I know you and I met just gosh, I guess it was just uh, around two years ago or just under two years ago because I had some concerns regarding Ainsley. And I know you don't do assessments, and but I do recall you saying that diagnosing autism is very difficult when there is another diagnosis such as Down syndrome. So why is this? Or yeah, I don't know. Well, can you, I don't know. Out, can you explain? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it kind of goes with what I was saying just now. It turns out that ASD is sort of can frequently present, you know, up to 90% of the cases present with another or coexisting diagnosis. And what happens is that diagnosis may mask the symptoms of, di of autism spectrum disorder. So ADHD, mood disorders, Down syndrome, all of those can paint a confusing picture for parents. And you have to sort of untangle this to sort of understand sort of what, what you're really looking at. And that can delay the diagnosis mm -hmm. itself, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it's, a, it's a complicated path for parents, for doctors, for educators. And could also be, especially with Down syndrome, the stereotype, as you know, Mary, with Down syndrome is that, you know, individuals with Down syndrome are friendly, affectionate, outgoing, mm -hmm. you know, that sort of thing. And, and with autism, social communication is the problem. So, making a diagnosis is difficult, but for a person with Down syndrome, it might be even more challenging because it's really difficult to mm -hmm. separate autism with other related issues into these neat little components, these little compartments. So, you know, for example, kids with, with autism, so one of the repetitive behaviors that we sometimes see kids do is watching the same TV show over and over and over and over and 
over again. Right. right. Yeah. You know, I hate to hark back to what some people think defines autism, which is Rain Man. Um, <laughs> but he watched, you know, uh, Wheel of Fortune or something, you know, every day, the same thing over and over. And it was, it was thought to be, seen to be sort of a repetitive behavior. But having just a single repetitive behavior doesn't really sort of make a warrant a diagnosis. A lot of people with Down syndrome like to watch the same TV shows or mm-hmm. videos over and over, but that doesn't make it have autism. So it really is this teasing apart that some things may mask the presentation of autism and of course sort of hide it and delay the, the diagnosis. Also in the past, it really was thought that having a dual diagnosis of autism and Down syndrome was impossible. Mm-hmm, I've read and that. we know that that's not no longer the case, that, that the two can and do coexist. Right. And so when we did come and see you, yeah. what were some of the things that you were looking for in Ainsley? If you can recall, I know it was a little while yeah. ago. Well, besides the fact that she was the cutest little button I've ever met. <laughs> um, Thank you. We... <laughs> She, um, really, when I'm sort of working with kids, there's some sort of core, as I said, you've, you've met one individual with autism, you've met mm-hmm. one individual with autism, but it is a diagnosis. And so there are some commonalities. So one of the things I'm looking for is joint attention. Mm-hmm. So if I point to something across the room, does she or does child look to where I'm pointing? Or if I put like a wind up toy on the table and let it go, does the child look at it? look at me and look back at the toy, like that you're sharing this experience, right? They don't have to communicate, but joint attention in itself is a form of communication. You know, kids Mm -hmm. do it. People do it all the time. You know, you're walking down the street and there's a bunch of people looking up and pointing. I mean, you can't help yourself. You're going to look up and see what the heck are they looking at, Mm -hmm. right? You know, you have this, this, this joint attention sort of, and that's really a core to communication. That's sort of how, what one of the, the core features of, of communication. I also look to see if the, in, the child uses their finger to point or to share attention with other people. Do they point at a bird or a plane or whatever? Mm-hmm. We, we look to see if they respond to when their name is called. Uh, we look to see if they can easily imitate or copy what I do. So, you know, if I'm hammering something, are they going to hammer it? But if I'm, if it's obvious, like, you know, you pick up a hammer and you you hammer it on a nail, that's sort of an obvious way to hammer. But if I take the hammer and I kind of bonk it on the floor, do you, you know, do something different with it? Do they imitate that? Oh, okay. That uh, movement as well, right? I also see if the child has any sort of repetitive behaviors. So, mm-hmm. They like spinning a lid of a jar or oftentimes uh, years ago, I did an internship at, uh, where, at Sunny Hill where they did, uh, they do some diagnoses and sometimes you sort of come out into the waiting room and all the toys would be lined up, you know, <laughs> yeah. in there. And so is there some, is there some sort of, you know, lining up of toys or objects or are there some repetitive body movements like flapping of the fingers or arms or rocking You know, I also, does the child kind of look at me when they talk Mm -hmm. or do they look away? And and that brings in this question of eye contact Mm -hmm. because some people will say, some people say, oh, my kid has good eye contact, so they can't have autism. Well, eye contact isn't a diagnostic must. It's some people with autism can do and have pretty good eye contact. Mm -hmm. Some people... I know who are neurotypical don't have good eye can- t- contact, but they're <laughs> neurotypical, right? right? So, you know, it's not a it's not a distinguishing feature. It's it's something that 
that certainly is common, mm-hmm. but it's mostly also how you use your eye contact, like I said, that join attention. That's part of it. I also took a look to see how and why a person communicates. Do they? Does the kid only communicate to make me do something like that they want, like get me a cookie or open the bubbles or, you know, something, or do they communicate to sort of share attention? Like, okay. you know, kids come in and they kind of, they have a new toy in their hand and they hold it up to you and they're like, look at it, right? They don't want you to take it. They mm-hmm. don't want you to do something with it. They just want you to look at it because they think it's cool and they think you should think it's cool, right? <laughs> so they're communicating to share attention. But mostly when I was, you know, when I was with you or with parents, I really sort of, it's a sort of just this tiny little moment in time mm-hmm. to be with the child. And so I also, as you remember, asked you a lot of questions right. related to these areas because really mm-hmm. a parent knows their child best. Mm-hmm. And it's really important to get the parental perspective because it may have been a shy day for her. It may have been an overwhelming sort of environment. It may have been, you know, and so it's more about are these things consistent in, in the child's life right? sort of day to day. Okay. I see. Yeah. That totally makes sense. So those are awesome pointers. I think for people who are, you know, concerned if their child may be showing some of these behaviors and, you know, I know we've talked previously, but, and I've heard so many different statistics, but do you know approximately what the percentage of the down syndrome put, down syndrome population potentially has autism i'm not that expert uh but i know that that there it's it's more common than in the typical population Mm -hmm. so we know that kids with down syndrome have typically a higher rate of diagnosis and i actually kind of looked that up i know that you'd asked me that before and so there was a study done in the in the uk uh, i think it was around 2017 it was warner at all a group and and when they did their lit review they found that about 16 to 18 percent of children with down syndrome also met a diagnostic criteria for autism okay and so this is considerably higher Mm -hmm. than the general population which is hovering around two percent uh, in the general population. Oh, okay. So um, certainly there's a higher co-occurrence of Down syndrome and autism co-occurring together. And I know in the typical population, it seems to be more prevalent in boys and girls. Is that, do you know, is that the same in the Down syndrome population or do we know? I'm I'm not sure there. I, I can tell you that it is uh, traditionally or historically autism uh, is diagnosed four to five more times in boys than it is in females. Wow. And I am not sure if this relates into Down syndrome. Uh, that's not sort of my area, but I, I would assume so. But even that is interesting point because what we're finding is that this sort of difference in Uh, the differences between males and females becomes less and less over time. And it could be that females are diagnosed later. As we talked Mm -hmm. before, kids with Down syndrome were typically viewed as being more social, outgoing. And if we think of females, they're typically viewed as being Mm -hmm. more social, outgoing. And a lot of females are very good at what we call mimicking or following sort of the context. So you've got Mm -hmm. a group of girls together together. They kind of mimic what everyone's doing and they kind of go unnoticed until later years in life. And I I have met many women who 
were diagnosed uh, in adulthood. Wow. And so it, it, it's thought that the, the you know, theoretically, the, that difference between four to five times more boys and girls can actually be down to maybe twice as more in boys than it is in, in females. So, you know, we don't know. But we, we do know that the, the rate is going up. That's very interesting. So I know you talked a little bit about what you were looking for when when you met with Ainsley a while back. But if someone was like, if a parent has some concerns, a, a parent with a child with Down syndrome, are there some things that they could maybe look for? I know you like I know I was concerned because Ainsley didn't readily point, and you said mm-hmm. you know answering to their name. Are there some other sort of I guess simple I'd, I I'd use that term loosely, but you know, things that they could sort of look for if they had some concerns that they could bring up to their pediatrician? Sure. Well, I'm a really strong believer in the gut of a parent. Mm-hmm. So if you think something's off, say so to okay. your pediatrician or your doctor and keep saying so until somebody sort of hears you. Because many people, as we said, uh, you know, may just sort of say, oh, that's because your kid has Down syndrome mm-hmm. or that's because your kid has intellectual disability. You know, that's what you're seeing. And so, you know, it's really sort of, you know, really sort of keep keep pushing, keep asking those questions. Ask the people that you know around you, your speech path, your infant development person, you know, someone to sort of connect you with that. So. It's hard on this sort of podcast to say, you know, look of for this course. and see this, but there yeah. is a there is a really great resource that I'll I'll sort of put a plug to. I have no uh, connection, uh, financial connection with this resource at all. Just and we can put the disclaimer. link in our notes as well, so yeah. people can, can oh, find great. it. Yeah, so it's at the Florida State University. It's uh, from the lab of Dr. Amy Weatherby, who's a speech language pathologist, but also an expert in the area of autism, mm-hmm. and it's called Autism Navigator. Okay. And if you go into Autism Navigator and you click on Family Resources, you can find a ton of helpful stuff. Okay. So, for example, they have like a like a lookbook. It's it's sixteen. It's called sixteen by sixteen. So, really, kids by the age of sixteen months should have these sixteen types of gestures in their repertoire. Mm-hmm. And so, it, it shows you photos. It shows you illustrations. It uses family friendly language, and it sort of really talks about how kids can reach these you know these gesture milestones by 16 months and at least by 24 months so that's a really good helpful one to sort of look at that lookbook and go is my kid doing this is my kid doing this is doing this okay another one is they have this really fabulous they have a social communication growth chart and as i Mm -hmm. said in the beginning this is a social communication disorder Mm -hmm. right so Mm -hmm. they have this social communication chart that you can kind of look through yourself and they also have, because a picture's worth a thousand words, a video glossary. Okay. And this video glossary, really it has side by side. So it's a kid who's been diagnosed with autism, you know, it show, is doing an activity next to, and then the, the next clip is the another kid doing the same activity who doesn't have autism. And they show you, it really kind of shows you the slight differences ah, you're looking okay. for. Very and it's really great to see that. And so, you know, you could use those things, you could use those, because sometimes you'll go to your physician and, and you're kind of like, oh, I, I know something's wrong, but you can't explain it very well, because, and so they kind of, unfortunately, you're either sort of, well, you know, written off, but I don't want to put, put down on physicians, but there's only so much time they right. have, they, mm-hmm. they might not see it all. But sometimes if you go in there, say with this lookbook, and you say, 
my kid's not doing this, 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 and this. Like, these are the things that they're not doing that I'm mm -hmm. concerned. This is why I'm concerned. Okay. Or you see in the video glossary something and you're like, it's joint attention. Like, I saw this and my kid doesn't, and you can explain it better. So okay. sometimes it's nice for just to kind of get uh, connected with that. But if you have a kid under the age of three, in BC, you should, you can and should be contacting your local infant development program. Mm -hmm. And it's a free program that is available. You don't need a referral from a physician or, or anything. Most of the uh, infant development programs are run by at local child development centers. Mm -hmm. And they have sort of infant development specialists who can, you know, work with the family to kind of figure out, you know, navigate the system to, mm -hmm. to you know what they should be looking for that's for young kids under the age of three yeah because it, it is it is challenging I know one of the concerns I initially had with Ainsley is she kind of flapped at her mouth a lot and our old OT thought it was more of a sensory issue I mean she she loves to chew on things so but I guess that could be part of the co-diagnosis I guess right yeah yeah again it's it, that's why it's so hard to diagnose mm -hmm. kids uh, autism in, in kids with developmental disabilities in general you know one symptom can really mask the diagnosis and it, it means it's it's ignored or written off as associated with down syndrome and not asd mm -hmm. so this is really why if you have a child with a, already a diagnosis like down syndrome or intellectual disability or what have you and you're suspecting something else it's really important to get information from a multidisciplinary team so you know what does the speech pass say what does the ot say what does the pediatrician say what does the psychologist say and so all of those voices together come towards a diagnosis not sort of one single thing or the other because it may be that the ot says actually this is what i see when i see that behavior mm -hmm. and people go oh okay no you're you're right or or it could be the opposite people are like yeah i know you see that but we see this repetitive behavior, you know, in some other aspects of the child's life. And they're like, oh, okay, so let's mm -hmm. mark this as a repetitive behavior, not as a, a stuff, you know, a stimulatory one. Yeah. And I know we've previously talked about this, but when I met with the doctor who gave Ainsley her diagnosis, he, he said that they were seeing more and more kids come in for assessments that have Down syndrome. But I really felt that they didn't really know a lot about Down syndrome, even writing in the report that she was sitting in an, an odd position. But anyone who kind of knows anything about Down syndrome, even just a little bit, is that it's really common for our kiddos to sit in these really kind of peculiar positions of because of their tone. And I just honestly felt like her Down syndrome wasn't really taken into account. So like, are you aware if they are trying mm. to learn more about the dual diagnoses and the complexities of doing an assessment with an additional diagnosis? Yeah. You know, it's hard to talk to the specific situation, but, yeah. you know, in general, the field is, is, is learning more and more about co-occurring conditions, you know, and, and, you know, as I said before, it really wasn't that long ago when, you know, the diagnostic manual that's used in, in North America didn't even allow people to to have dual or comorbid diagnosis in, in a person right mm -hmm. so now it's sort of better understood but you know I would really encourage families to ask and it's hard because you know the it's hard to get the research and what we do know 
keeping up with the practice. People in the diagnostic world or in others, they're they're sort of trying to just keep up with this. You know, we have a huge wait list in British Columbia mm-hmm. to even get an assessment for diagnosis. So they don't have a heck of a lot of time to, you know, continuing on to take the, the education. So they have to sort of take it when they can. But so I really encourage families to sort of ask questions during and after the diagnostic process. Like, don't be afraid to, it doesn't matter how many letters somebody has behind their name. You can say, actually, that's, I see that as part of Down syndrome, okay. you know, or I see that as part of her inability. That's how she sits or that's her odd position. So I, I'm not sure why you're saying that as being autism. Can you explain the difference? And it might sort of put that in their mind they're going oh okay well maybe you know maybe it is that maybe I should be looking for something different so you know I encourage families also again as I said before to really talk if they have before they go to the diagnostic process really talk to their existing team if they're Mm -hmm. if they're working with an OT with an SLP and and really bring those reports forward to help inform that diagnosis. So okay. you know, again, it's a it's not black and white. Mm-hmm. It, it's really you know the more minds the better, uh, especially mm-hmm. when there's a, a known genetic diagnosis like Down syndrome already in the mix. The more minds around it, the better. Yeah, that makes total sense because it just it's much more complex as we previously talked about. Yeah, I never I never had never thought of it quite yeah. like that. So and. I know we also talked about my diagnosis experience receiving her autism diagnosis. It was horrible. And, you know, I felt like they just sort of painted a a really bleak picture and they hand you a book and tell you to call a number somewhere inside the book. And I know in the Down syndrome community, there's been a real push over the last couple of years to really try to educate uh, professionals who are giving a diagnosis on the best way to give a diagnosis. And I'm just wondering... Do you know if anything like this is happening in our autism community? Because it's it's a really hard time when you when you get that diagnosis. Yeah. So there's a there are a few things happening to sort of improve understanding and help families navigate the system. One is the creation. And I guess we could put this in a link too. It's Autism Information Services British Columbia, mm-hmm. and it's a provincially run service that provides support and expertise in the area of autism and related disorders. So it's not just autism. It's like when you call them, they don't say, you know, I, I would like to see your kid's autism diagnosis before I talk to you. They'll talk to you about any issues that you're you're having, mm-hmm. and they are there to support families and service providers. So. You know, a speech path might call them and say, you know, I have a kid and that I'm working with with Down syndrome and that we're querying autism. What's the diagnostic process that we need to do in BC? What should I, what should I, you know, who, who should I get them to refer? And, you know, what can I, and they can answer those questions for okay. you, that sort of thing. So it's not just, you know, focus on families, but also focus on service providers to help them too. So they have a toll-free line. You can drop in and see them in person. They're located in Richmond, um, you know, so it's only people around there, but they do have a provincial line. They also have, uh, you can connect to them uh, over, over the phone. You can connect over email and you can really ask them sort of any questions. Okay. And so they're also helping, you know, you'd asked about how are we getting, you know, other professions to to better understand autism they're also helping educate social workers and Mm -hmm. in some respects could be there for physicians to answer questions about asd and their needs so there's that that's available 
There's another project, and, and it's in development. It's actually one that I'm working on right now. I'm actually with the Centre for Interdisciplinary Research and Collaboration with Autism at the University of British Columbia. And we're right in the early stages of developing free online training resources for family physicians and pediatricians on autism oh, so wow. that they have a better understanding of ASD and related disorders. So when you're in med school, uh, doctors are saying there's a there's a lot you need to learn. And oh my goodness, I'm not a medical doctor, but you know, they have to learn a lot. And mm -hmm. so sometimes autism and other developmental disabilities aren't really high up there on the mm -hmm. curriculum because they're sort of have their curriculum is packed with other things. So we are um, looking to create some, there's a lot of existing good things that are online. So we're not wanting to duplicate, mm -hmm. but we're certainly look at creating sort of some training resources that are targeted to that, to those, those, that service sector physicians and pediatricians and medical professionals so that they can have a better understanding of ASD and related disorders and maybe make know when to make the referral for, for assessment for diagnosis earlier, if, if that's so be the case. So. Oh, that's really wonderful to hear because just even getting the Down syndrome diagnosis was very was quite devastating and then I almost felt like getting yeah. autism diagnosis was almost as bad so I'm really happy to hear that that they're they're working on that because it then parents can think that they have a lifeline somewhere right and yeah you know yeah, and, yeah. and and you have a lifeline with ACBC too just call them up yeah and every, every time I've called them like especially in the early days they were awesome they were fantastic and really helpful and you know full of information which was great because it, you just feel like you're sinking at the time so and it's hard yeah and then so there's so much out there and you have to navigate this giant system and, oh and I know leave it all on the shoulders of parents and and I can't imagine how hard that is I mean you you need somebody to help guide you mm -hmm. you can't you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time and a lot of parents feel like they're reinventing the wheel over and over and over again. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I was actually very fortunate to get a really great consultant. She is actually quite familiar with the dual diagnosis. It was kind of hard to find somebody who had familiarity in particular with Down syndrome and autism. And she set up a really great program with Ainsley and she's using ABA therapy. And I was wondering if you could maybe explain what that kind of therapy is and what that even stands for. <laughs> sure. So ABA stands for applied behavioral analysis. And actually it's, I, I, you know, first of all, it's so great that you found someone and that you made that connection. And yeah, that's what ACE can also help. ACE BC can also help sort of guide you towards who's available and they have a list of people. But, you know, when we go down to treatment and we're I'll, I'll go into sort of what is applied behavior analysis in a sec. But when we think about treatment, we know that there's no one treatment that has 100% effectiveness for all kids. Mm -hmm. That sort of makes sense because what we were talking about before is that we're not really dealing with this very specific type of presentation of autism spectrum disorder where you do a certain intervention and it will work for everyone. Everyone's pretty unique. Mm -hmm. And so it's really about finding out what's most effective for that child in that family, in that community. That said, approximately when we look at the research, about two-thirds of treatments that are effective, that have demonstrated to be effective, are developed from behavioral theories. And that is this learning model of applied behavioral analysis. Okay. Now, ABA, or applied behavioral analysis, is not a name brand specific treatment type. It's not like, you know the name of a, a specific brand. It, it's really a theoretical model 
that's really demonstrated to have a positive impact. So really it's a science. It involves systematically applying these principles of learning mm-hmm. to bring about really positive and meaningful change in social behavior. So for example, a principle of learning, one of these principles, uh, I'm being really simplistic now, is that positive reinforcement tells us if a behavior is followed by a reward, that the, that behavior will occur more st- more often, mm-hmm. right? So if we use positive, one of the things is to use positive reinforcement to help individuals with autism learn new and important skills. So you use these these sort of sort of learning methodologies of, of applied behavioral analysis to teach new new skills for kids. So, it, it, but it really is about clinicians understanding the, the model of ABA and the, and the learning strategies of ABA, and then developing unique interventions tailored to the needs of a specific child mm-hmm. and a specific family. So, you know, it's great that you found someone who has that sort of understanding and experience and can kind of say, you know, Ainsley is her own unique little human, and but they're using sort of evidence-based methodology to create mm-hmm. a treatment program for her. That's great. And I know I've heard of like a few other types of therapies, such as the new Denver model, and I'm sure there's others that I don't know about. But do you feel that there's one that's better than the other? Like the ABA seems to be quite prevalent in everything that I've read. The one that's used yeah. seems to be used. The so most. I don't know if there's one that's better than another. You certainly, you certainly, definitely need to have an understanding. And AB, as I said, ABA is a theoretical model which infuses into the actual presentation of how intervention is done. Mm-hmm. Right? It's in a systematic, measurable sort of way. So you want to ensure that happens. But you, you sort of mentioned Denver model. I think there, there's a there's a, a name brand type of intervention called Early Start Denver model. ESDM, which is really popular right now. And it, it, it is based in the theory of ABA. That is oh, okay. its base. But it also infuses relationship-based early intervention, and it, and, and it uses data. It, it, you know, it, with ABA, it uses a data-based approach, sort of teaching mm-hmm. a certain strategy. They, they monitor it. Does the child get it? Yes, he does. Let's move on. If he doesn't, let's adjust. Let's move on. But it also includes sort of play-based approaches, developmental mm-hmm. within that model. So it's not sort of, you know, traditional ABA people think in their mind, they sort of have this picture of a child sitting down at a table face-to-face with a clinician pointing to things or doing a do this, you know, the clinician says yeah. do this and they clap their hands and then the kid has to clap their hands and, you know, that's not that's sort of not what, that's not the that's a discrete child training approach that's not the pure, that's not the only thing that ABA is. It's, mm-hmm. it's really sort of these learning strategies that we know work for a wide variety of individuals, not just kids with developmental disabilities, and using those strategies in a really sort of purposeful and systematic way to improve behavior. So, you know, we've just been discussing every child is new, unique, mm-hmm. you know, no matter if they have a single diagnosis or a dual diagnosis said there really is no one-size-fits-all intervention approach, right? right? So it's best to make sure, I, the advice I give to families is to make sure that they're working with clinicians who are qualified and trained in the area of ABA, mm-hmm. who are qualified and, and have understanding of development, play, and social learning. And it's really their job to kind of look at you or look at Ainsley and go, okay, what is it? You know, knowing all these skills that I have, you know, when people are saying I I do a cookie cutter intervention, that concerns me because they've only learned one way to do it. And they're trying Mm -hmm. to slot kids into this into this hole. 
and it doesn't work that way. It works the opposite way. You need to you your 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 uh, your interventionist or your behavior consultant or your speech path or whoever is working with your child needs to have sort of a really good base of understanding of development of play of social learning of you know behavioral strategies and use all of their knowledge to create an intervention program that's based in evidence because they have that background that right. that works for your child in in the moment so you know, and that said, you might not find that mm-hmm. all in one person. That's right. pretty hard. So yeah. you might, that's where the team approach comes in. So you might have a behavior consultant, you might have the speech path, you might have no tea, and all those people work together. And it's important that they listen to each other and, and learn from each other, work together to create a unique and special program that, that really in, builds on those skills of, of, the, of the child. Yeah, and I do feel fortunate that I, I found her and, you know, because Ainsley's done really well. She's been quite impressed with how, like, you know, we didn't, we're not doing a ton of hours every week, but she's been really happy with the progress that Ainsley has made. And, and I know one of the pediatricians that was at the actual assessments, you know, told me that it is a spectrum disorder and that, you know, that I'll see great improvements over the next year. And I definitely have because it's really just been a year since we started ABA. So I, I'm quite happy with the things that I've seen. What are some of the challenges, do you think, or I, I don't know, this might be a loaded question, but what are some of the challenges of having a dual diagnosis, do you think? Well, I, I, I kind of want to put that back on you a bit um, because, you know, uh, we've talked a lot about, you know, creating a program, mm-hmm. you know, addressing, you know, having the, having people who, who are, you know, qualified to kind of understand that the differences, understanding masking, understanding sort of what you're dealing with. But, you know, I, I guess maybe I want to ask you, I can talk about all those challenges, but from a parent perspective, what are the challenges you face? Do you face conscious or unconscious bias about having a dual diagnosis? Do you mm-hmm. feel that people are you know, because some families do say to me, you know, it's they want to stick my kid in this slot, like mm-hmm. the Down syndrome slot mm-hmm. and the autism slot. And that's not my kid. My kid has lots of great things going on and lots of different needs and strengths. And, you know, so I, I kind of would put that back onto mm-hmm. you. What are, what are, do you feel that there are challenges being a parent of a child with a dual diagnosis? Well, because sometimes yeah, I, I wonder. Yeah, no, no, that's totally fine. Um, no, yeah. and it's totally <laughs> valid, right? Because like sometimes I think yeah like I'm on these different forums and you know it it scares me quite frankly when I'm on some of these dual diagnosis forums because I I read some pretty I I guess I don't want to say terrible but hard things like that parents are having to deal with and I don't see that with Ainsley a lot like she doesn't she transitions easily you know she doesn't have these huge meltdowns you know she's verbal it's coming it's slow but it's coming whereas a lot of these parents you know and she's potty trained uh you know a lot of these behaviors that I think a lot of parents aren't seeing in their kids who are older that have the dual diagnosis and and also like the school kept actually just got a call from the school the other day wanting asking me again about having the autism report in her file and I said I don't want it in her file because it was so negative what was written in the mm. file and I really didn't want it to bias them against Ainsley like they know she has the dual diagnosis which is fine and I said does it change anything for her does it change her like support or her funding or anything like that and they said no and I and 
so they were fine with that but they were just saying because sometimes somebody might be doing an audit and wondering why it's not in there and they I guess they needed to verbally hear from me specifically why I didn't want it in there because yeah. I said well I can give you the report but most of it will be blacked out but I just because it was just really hard when I got the report and dealing with that and and I just really didn't want that because there's so much stigma as I'm sure you know associated with autism I mean down syndrome and I, myths and yes, a lot of myths exactly yeah. Yeah. you know just like the whole thing yeah. where we're talking about eye contact a lot of people I've read on many forums the dual forums or just even down syndrome forums oh my kid has great eye contact so they can't have autism no that's not the case Ainsley has pretty good eye contact and you know she's got the dual diagnosis so yes I guess you know and I haven't really even talked that openly I mean people close to us know it and you know a lot of people in our down syndrome group know knows that Ainsley has the dual diagnosis I don't really openly talk a lot about it but um you know and I'm not in dispute of the diagnosis it was it was hard it was really hard because you know you're already dealing with some mm -hmm. other you know challenges and then now you're throwing another curveball right so yes definitely mm -hmm. it's it yeah there are those challenges of of just having those different labels and you know and I hate even using that word labels but you know mm -hmm. it is it is what it is and yeah you know go ahead no, I was going to say, I mean, sometimes labels work in a, a way to get funding mm -hmm. or get services mm -hmm. or, but once you pass that little decision tree, you see that, does this child have this or this? And then they go down that route. Mm -hmm. It's then need to focus on the, what are the strengths of this individual? What are their unique needs of this individual? What can we do to help Ainsley reach her potential? And I, I really agree with you that having a, you know, because people, some people don't read kids' files, which is fine because they're busy and they don't have time. But some people might read through that entire file and paint a picture in their mind. And if mm -hmm. you felt a lot of that was negative and that it sort of portrayed a thing that went, she's not going to do this, she's not going to do that, she's not going to do this, then people don't have the expectation to get her to do it. I mean, I've seen you grow with Ainsley of people who are saying, oh, she's never going to walk, she's never going to, you know, it's enough of hearing nevers mm -hmm. and, and you don't want to. I totally agree. As, as you as a parent have every right to say, it's great. And she has a dual diagnosis. People need to understand. So understand ASD, understand Down syndrome. But you really don't need to see this this report, which will then perhaps bias you against you know my child because of this mm -hmm. other diagnosis. So Yeah, and that's exactly yeah. what I felt. And, and also on some of the dual diagnosis forms I'm on, a lot of parents... I keep hearing their child, they're saying their child is nonverbal. And mm. I did ask Riley, our speech path, like what nonverbal means. And I said, is it really no words or does it just mean no functional words? So I'm like, do you see that more? I mean, I know your specialty isn't dealing with kids with Down syndrome, but do, is that more common in kids with Down syndrome that they're maybe nonverbal if they have the dual diagnosis? Well, yeah, as you said, I'm, I don't, know of the data to back that up so mm -hmm. I'm not the person to ask but I can talk about this term nonverbal and being nonverbal doesn't mean non-communicative 
Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, communication is so much more than just verbal words. Mm -hmm. You know, we communicate so much. I mean, I I encourage people to go out for the rest of the day and look at the way people communicate without using words. And you will have a huge list at the end of the day. People use gestures. People Mm -hmm. lead people over. They use joint attention and sort of eye contact. They, They use body position. You know, you can tell when someone wants to stop talking or leave a meeting when papers get shuffled or people yeah. are looking at their watch or you have all this understanding of all these all these behaviors i always encourage families who you know say, oh my child's not verbal and they're thinking non-communicative i, I say well why don't you try some things like this like if your kid maybe your kid really loves bath time every night they do bath time and they get in the bath and they have a wonderful time and so maybe this time put them in the bath without any toys in it because some one time i got them to put toys in the kid didn't care Look in the bath, but don't turn the water on and just sit there and look at it and see what happens. And your child's going to communicate one way or another (laughs) that you are a bit crazy, mom or dad. And why isn't the water on? Like they might cry. They might think Mm -hmm. they might reach to the water tap. They might grab, you know, one time a a parent did this, put it in, but they had all the toys in. And the kid was like, yeah, I'm just going to play with the toys in the yeah. bathtub with no water. That was fine with them. Or put them in the water without any of the toys. Mm-hmm. They're going to tell you they want toys in the water somehow, right? right. So there really is having this uh, having this thing being nonverbal and non-communicative are, are not, not, you know, not the same same thing. They're, they, they go together. And, and really there's also this huge field of augmentative and alternative communication Mm -hmm. that that perhaps I'm not an expert in AAC or augmentative alternative communication, but perhaps that's a a good one for another uh, podcast for you, (laughs) AAC and SLPs. But, you know, I've really seen firsthand what that can do. So I've seen kids who have significant intellectual disability, who were thought to be nonverbal, have this sort of true potential once they can, you know, either a picture exchange communication system where they pull off a, a picture communication symbol and hand it to someone mm-hmm. saying, you know, they want something or they, or they have a, a high tech one where they're actually pressing symbols and those are making sentences and talking mm-hmm. or a, a lot of, there have been stories and you can see them on the internet of individuals who have been nonverbal their whole life, but suddenly have the, have been exposed to a, a keyboard and a computer and now can type yeah. and, and show that they have much more people who they thought had an intellect autism and an intellectual disability found out that this person doesn't have an intellectual disability at all. They just had difficulty there. They just weren't able to verbally communicate, communicate how we and verbally communicating can be hard. Sometimes mm-hmm. you got to think about, as I talk, think about all the stuff that goes on. Your, mm-hmm. your, your tongue's going up. Your lips are moving. There's all these motor movements. And if you have difficulty coordinating motor movements, then you may have difficulty praxia in terms of making the actual sounds. But it doesn't necessarily mean so. There's always, it's always, if a child's not verbalizing, it's find the right speech language pathologist to help to see if there's other ways that you can find for your child to com- learn to communicate with others and have uh, have their you know have their voice heard mm-hmm. in other ways. Yes, and that's always what I've heard too because we use a uh, touch yeah. chat with Ainsley at school and uh, yeah. you know and that's really aided in her speech and her vocabulary. So for parents who have gotten the dual diagnosis, and I know for me it was really hard, and and I knew you, so like you know you provided me with lots of resources and and people to contact but do you have any suggestions on where people can find information such as books or websites or articles 
and we can provide yeah, links I, on our website. So, yeah, as I said, you could contact the ACBC, but I would really sort of again, I defer those questions to uh, to the people like Down Syndrome Research Foundation and mm -hmm. others who are in the area of Down Syndrome, so okay. that they would have some of those those connections better. I'm I'm not the expert in knowing those specific resources. Mm -hmm. We can talk about the resources with with autism but not necessarily autism and Down syndrome as a dual diagnosis. Right. I would, nope. I would refer to the, the Down syndrome experts in that area. Okay. No, no problem. And the DSRF, yeah. uh, we've talked about many times, they're a fabulous yeah. resource. And yeah. I think they can yeah. assist people in that way too. And are yeah. you aware of any new research or studies in regards to the dual diagnosis at all? Yeah, no, I'm not personally aware. I would hope that more research is being done. I know that I, I did talk about that 2017 mm -hmm. study that looked at sort of the differences uh, between the kids with ASD and, and just with a diagnosis of ASD and those with a diagnosis of, of Down syndrome who were screened to have symptoms of ASD. And, you know, in, in those, in that case, in that study, they did find that they did find that actually kids with Down syndrome and who potentially could have ASD because they didn't diagnose them with ASD, but they did a screening tool that said they had many symptoms of ASD, they found that those kids actually were better at social communication and were better at mm -hmm. some sort of emotional kind of connections. So it's important for more research like that to be done for that research to get to the to the ears of the clinicians who are making the diagnosis because, again, it's really difficult it's it really easy to say oh well you know they do have good eye contact and they do they are better at this social interaction thing so they can't have autism but that's mm -hmm. not necessarily the case so I, I would hope that more research is is continues to be done in this area and yeah. you know well and I'm sure the parents would appreciate it especially since it appears that it's a fairly high percentage of you know kids with di or people yeah. with down syndrome could possibly also have an ASD diagnosis. Yeah, I was sh I was shocked when I read that. Yeah. yeah. And I've had well, I guess it's been yeah, it's just over a year now that I Ainsley received the autism diagnosis and I, you know, it was really I don't know, I don't know what the right word is, mortifying I guess when I actually the day that I got the diagnosis, but it's not the death sentence that at the time it felt like it was and but for parents who are feeling, I guess, the future is bleak, you know, you're already dealing with Down syndrome and some of those challenges. But do you have any positive encouragement to offer people? Or I know we talked about where to direct them. We can, we can, we'll also put a link on to the DSRF, but in, in your expertise or background. Yeah. I mean, it comes down to remembering that your child and each child is unique and no one, like no one, no matter how many letters they have behind their name or whatever it is can tell you what and a lot of times families are after a diagnosis like you experience have this sort of feeling that the prognosis is terrible mm -hmm. and I, I find it really difficult that anyone can tell what an infant or a toddler or even a school-age kid is going to be when they grow up or mm -hmm. what their potential is when they grow up you know, I, uh, my kids are 16 now, but I have one kid with a heart condition and they were like, oh, she's never going to play soccer and never going to do this and never going to do that. And it's like, hmm, that's your opinion, right? Mm -hmm. Like I have a different opinion of, of what's going on and we're going to, we're just going to take each day how it goes and we're going to give the kid as much as, as much love and care and evidence-based intervention for kids with ASD and, and Down syndrome as we can, we can get our hands on and we're just going to see 
where their potential goes, right? So mm-hmm. there's still so much that we don't know mm-hmm. about ASD and most definitely about ASD and Down syndrome, right? Because as mm-hmm. I said, very recently, you couldn't even have the two. Right. They couldn't even coexist that we don't know than, than what we do know. So it's encouraging. I, I would hope that parents would take encouragement in the fact that, you know, I think even 20, 30 years ago, kids were still institutionalized. That doesn't happen anymore. Mm-hmm. Schools are changing. Early intervention is changing. Society is changing. Mm-hmm. You know, when you and I, where you mentioned we went to high school together, when you and I went to high school, I don't really remember any kids with special needs walking exactly. down the halls or yeah. being in the school. Mm-hmm. I think there was a special room somewhere. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, and so, you know, there's there's new approaches, there's new research, there's there's new interventions every day that continue to have a positive impact on that field. You know, Mm -hmm. more people are being trained, more people are understanding. Uh, uh, Put a plug in for the Canucks Autism Network. Just uh, created two training modules on that can be accessed online. And there, one is for training modules for recreation providers. So coaches, people like that. So, oh, you know, it used to be, it, we're becoming more inclusive. The other mm-hmm. one they did is for first responders. Yes, I've you know, seen to that. To better yep. understand mm-hmm. autism. And the other one is for the rec providers and coaches and people in that area to better understand autism and developmental disabilities. So the world is becoming more inclusive. It's mm-hmm. not like you, you know, and if you are going to your local rec center and they say, hmm, we don't really do that. Parents can now go, oh, you know what? There's this training thing online and you can contact here and your staff can be trained and you can do that. My kid can get included. My kid can have a variety and a, a full, wholesome, a full sort of multifaceted life, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's more people being trained every day, but, you know, most of all, it's, it's just enjoying, it sounds hokey, but enjoy those moments, this mindfulness, like, Look at the little accomplishments. People are always mm-hmm. looking towards these big goals, mm-hmm. you know, but when you see these little goals, like, you know, kids being toilet trained or walking or, you know, those are bigger goals too, but even just saying a new word today, or like mm-hmm. those are great things. They should be sort of um, celebrated, celebrated. Um, yeah. as you go on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 100% but, you know, agree. each kid, yeah, each kid has potential and, and it's really, you know, figuring out how can I help my kid reach that? potential and and but enjoying life with them at the same time Mm -hmm. right just being and you know doing regular regular things you know some things annoy all parents and some (laughs) things you know and so it's realizing sort of this is you know this wonderful thing that we all experience so if we're lucky to experience this parenthood Mm -hmm. oh that's awesome Karen, thank you so much for taking the time out of your your busy day to talk with us. And, you know, it's such a complex subject. And but also, I think it's really important for a lot of the parents out there that are listening with, you know, if they have some concerns about their child with Down syndrome, that maybe they're exhibiting some behaviors that they have, you know, concerns that maybe their child has ASD or autism and hopefully they can get pointed in the right direction and and I do really appreciate your time and your expertise and and that you're able to come on today. No, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me and uh yeah. It was uh it was great. I hope I was able to say something useful. <laughs> so, yeah. Ron smiling. You never yes. know. Right? So, yeah. <laughs> yes, I yeah. think so. And I I think yeah, I I even learned a lot from our conversation today, so that's fa- fantastic. So great. again, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Karen. Okay. Thanks, Thanks, Mary. Take Bye. Care.
So that was a lot of information from Dr. Bob. And I hope all of you were able to, you know, take something from it. If you have suspicions that maybe your child possibly has ASD or, you know, if you're waiting on a diagnosis and if you have any questions or anything, just send them my way. I would love to hear from you. And I hope that you all found this episode enlightening and also educational because it is a pretty high percentage that our kids could potentially have the dual diagnosis. And I know for me, I so did not want to hear that when I went in for the assessment and they were to give me the news. But I took some time and I got a good team on board and Ainsley's doing amazing. And I know if you're on this journey as well with the dual diagnosis, if you can get the right supports in place, your child will also do amazing. I have no doubt. Thanks for listening to the T21 Mom podcast. And like I said, I would love to hear from you. What things are important to you as you navigate this journey of special needs and Down syndrome? How are you doing things your way? Drop us a line at our email at info at t21mum.com and let us know what's going on in your life or suggestions for future stories or episodes that you would love to hear. And as I've said previously on many episodes, I would love to hear from you. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review and that helps us make a makes us a bit more searchable for others and just let us know how we're doing keep on loving on your rocking kiddos and we will see you next time 